Welcome to another edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Today, we are honored to have Pedro Silva. Pedro Silva is the Director of Engagement with Unify. Pedro, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing pretty good, man. All things considered. <laughs> All things considered. And well, yeah, we are in a stressful situation in this country right now. But you know what? It's activists, it's people that are engaging that actually makes a difference. First of all, tell us a little bit about what Unify does. So Unify is in the space that we uh, lovingly call bridging, which is basically bringing people together across differences. And um, we kind of have the mission of minimizing toxic polarization, as well as bridging cultural divides of every kind, but with the aim of solving the problems that are very solvable in our country. And we kind of come from the mindset that we have everything we need to flourish, to thrive, and to create systems that um, positively impact our communities. It's just getting past some of those hurdles. And some of those hurdles are polarization, um, misunderstanding of different cultural norms and things like that. So we create containers, whether it's through uh, using uh, conversation and uh, trainings and such are Jody, which stands for Justice, Opportunity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity, hosting films, all sorts of different interventions that bring people together to look at the values that inspire and motivate people and then try to help create uh, situations where they can look at how can we solve problems that a lot of times are across differences, like people are experiencing similar problems and then they just have challenges in terms of uh, creating solutions because they're too busy focusing on the divides or the things that seem to divide. It's hard not to think about uh, the divide, right? When there are people in the, in the positions of power who selectively are trying to do that. I have some reasons why I think they do, but let's, let's use an example as, you know, critical race theory, which supposedly mm -hmm. isn't taught in mm -hmm. high school or in these other places, but, Somehow that's become a new meme that really keeps people apart because folks don't want this critical race theory taught. How do you get around the people in power attempting to put that on to, to, to the community, if you will, while you are at the same time trying to tell these folks you need to try to get along? I mean, it, it's almost you're fighting the powers, the people with power that's pushing these particular memes? Well, we kind of come from the position that the individual who is uh, kind of building the community actually has more power than they think that they have to affect positive change through organizing um, and collective action. And the challenge is helping people realize that they have the power that they don't think they have. Usually, People in a lot of systems, they look to someone and they say, OK, that is the person that has the power. And so I, being a powerless person, have to align myself with power to keep myself safe or to provide for my family or whatever the thing is that most human beings have in common. And we try to show people you actually have more power than you think you do. And from a, a place of power, you can actually build relationships because people, the reason why I think a lot of people don't build the relationships across perceived differences is because of fear and fear of not having power, fear of being left behind, fear of not being able to take care of their family. And so they look to some leader that tells them, I see 
your problems. I see your challenges and I can save you. And then they say, "Okay, I'm going to trust that you can do that because I feel powerless to do it myself. But if you actually can uh, connect with other people who have similar values, they want to provide for their children. They want to be able to pay their bills. They want to be able to imagine having a future. And you put them with other people and go, oh, what? We have similar values. Hold on. We are both uh, being, the strings are being pulled by people who seem to have power. We believe them to have power, but there's more power in our interrelating and co-creating than there is in this system that's struggling to try to maintain a semblance of power. That's kind of our approach. And so we try to help people recognize the power that's already inherent in them and then expand on that through organizing collective action and working together across differences to learn, to see multiple perspectives on the same problem and being able to do something together to solve these these challenges that most people agree on a lot of the issues you see is like 70% of people agree and yet we see this polarization is like how is that possible it's because people feel powerless and that's where we kind of uh engage at that level now that that is commendable the work that that you're doing my biggest question with these types of organizations is how do you scale um i can see these these organizations working well in this in a suburban area i can see them working well in places where uh, people have the time to have thought processes and going to meetings etc 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 what happens in these areas where people are living on top of each other and just trying to make it through the day what kind of procedural uh fixes are is there for that sort of a environment I, mean, I think that's a probably a valid criticism of any kind of work that's in this space is because a lot of people don't have the time or the resources, at least at this present time, to be able to, like you said, attend meetings and things like that. But there are ways, and just like if you grew up poor, like I grew up poor, there are natural, like inherent ways that people organize to be able to survive in those conditions. And I think that that what we see in those environments where people have rent parties and do things like, um, you know, run car washes or sell dinners to help people uh, pay for their food or I mean, pay for their rent and things like that, is that there's already an inherent wisdom in community to be able to work together to solve problems. But what we've done is we've allowed, again, we've forgotten that we do have power. And so we don't lean into our neighbors. We have bought into the illusion that we can do things all on our own. And so as we've started to buy into that, we end up being victim to the propaganda that's out there that tells them that we're powerless. And so I think that fundamentally, it's reminding people of the wisdom of community that has already existed within us for generations and being able to maximize that wisdom. So even in a poor environment, say they wanted to build a garden in their community, and we've seen people do it, where a person will say, hey, you know what, we need some fresh food in this community, and it's a food desert out here. But some people decide, hey, we're going to get together, we're going to collectivize, we're going to make this little garden, and then you see a little bit of a success. And then you start to realize that you can do these things among yourself, 
then it changes the way you approach power. Even take, for example, as you know, I was a pastor for 10 years, right? Right. So there's certain situations where uh, a person says like, oh, I feel powerless. Like we do a thing called power mapping and it shows people that they actually have more connections and more relationships than they think they have and that those things can be leveraged. So say someone wants something to happen in their community, but they say, well, who am I by myself? Well, maybe by yourself, you don't feel like you're anyone. But then you say, well, do you belong to a church? Yeah, I belong to a church. Okay. How many people in your church have had that same concern or that same, that same issue? And then you connect with those people and say, okay, how many people in faith communities in general, is your church connected to another one? Yes. How many people in faith communities are having the same issue? Okay, let's discuss. It's that individualism that ends up making people diminish themselves instead of maximizing themselves collectively. And so we help people to see that. Then they can come to their same senator who won't listen to one person and say, hey, I represent 300 people who all, uh, you know, see this. And then it changes the dynamic. But it's getting people to remember that they can lean on each other and build relationships. Like we're working with a group in Ohio right now. They're mostly retired people who have decided that they want to see some, there's a lot of things happening in Ohio right now. And oh, they're yeah. like, we, we want to see some changes happening. And they've decided, yeah, I might be retired and I might be a little older, but it's still an opportunity for me to affect positive change because they've gone to some of the trainings and said, okay, well, if we try to do this, do you think it's possible? Yes, it, we do think it's possible. We just have to collectivize and lean in to making those kinds of positive changes. And we've seen people making those shifts and that, that can be duplicable because that's how societies have survived from the beginning of time. We just forgotten about it because we bought into, I can do everything by myself, which keeps people divided. It's amazing that you are actually saying to to break down our polarization to be able to enhance our power. The one thing that this country preaches, which is in fact individualism, is actually its biggest weakness. Absolutely, I mean, you're you're essentially saying that, and you take a look at you know uh, when we go into the guns issue, you take a look at. 80% of Americans want most of the good things about uh, about restricting guns. 80% of Americans plus. Absolutely. And we can't get it through. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, one of the words I, I uh, that individual word, I break it down sometimes into in divide you all. And mm -hmm. so it's like you take an individual and they're operating from a place of division, right? And so you get a person, imagine... We've watched the movies, you know, Rambo or uh, whatever kind of movie where one person goes in and somehow they're saving 50, 60, 300 people by themselves. That belief that that one person can be able to protect everyone, to save everyone. And we it's a fantasy. Right. But we have it in the culture of the American consciousness. So imagine a person, their value is I want my family to be safe. I want my family to be protected. Everybody agrees on that, you know, and I want to be able to, uh, you know, take care of my children. I want these things for my family. It comes down to that. Right. And then they say, but if it's threatened, what can I do? Well, by myself, I can't do anything. I'm scared. But if I have this weapon and each bullet, let's imagine this, right? 
each bullet represents a, from from the conscious in that person is like a multiplier. It's a force multiplier. And so they imagine themselves to have a, a multiplication of themselves through their weapons and their bullets and things like that. And it all comes down to a value of trying to protect and take care of their family. And they don't want anybody to harm their family, which is honorable value. But then that same individualism thinks I had to do it by myself. If you have a community that's working together to encourage one another, to support one another, to see kids that are struggling and that everybody sees it as their problem and that something that they can work together to solve, then the environment itself becomes safer and you don't even need the, the fear of the threat that you're going to protect yourself from is diminished by community and by working together with people uh, to solve problems. And that's the thing that I think with the guns you see is people think that they have to save everything and do everything by themselves. And they see guns as a force multiplier that builds their capacity to be able to do that thing. But in reality, I don't think it is that way. In interestingly, right. Uh, we're talking, we, we, we just use guns as an example right there, but if we go ahead and migrate to the subway in, uh, in New York, where Jordan Neely was murdered by um, Penny, uh, Daniel Penny, uh, because he came in with mental issues, shouting that he wanted some food and he didn't care if he lived, he touched nobody. And this guy just choked him to death. And I, I want to break this into two pieces because there, there, are, two, there are two pieces here. The seeing a black body automatically as a weapon or as a danger, number one, even if that person is mentally ill. But number two, how you actually saw a particular sect try to defend uh, Neely, try to make it that he just did what he needed to do or what he thought he needed to do. And they don't see that, they, they're unable to see that what you're saying is being in a black body gives others the right not to kill you, but to believe they are justified in killing you. Well, I mean, I would say that this is a criticism to some degree of the education system, but I'll say the education system works in the sense that we have different narratives that we perpetuate in our system, uh, generally speaking, that all come down to, again to the same value. I want to be safe. I want to be protected. I don't want my family to lose out. I want to be able to provide for my family. And anything that seems like it's a threat to that, then I have to keep it away from me. I have to distance myself from it. And it's a, but it also emerges from a unconscious, often sense of powerlessness. Like the people, they actually feel powerless, but then it manifests as, as force, which is force and power are two different dynamics. Right. But we conflate force with power in our in our society. And so a person feels that their ability to force a situation is the same thing as power, which, in fact, is not. And even with the the, the situation with black bodies. Like, yes, it's been weaponized. Like I've had people tell me who people get to know me. I'm short. I'm like very short. I'm like five foot four. Um, and I've had people say to me, I don't know why, but in my mind, you're six feet tall. Like 
generally speaking. Right. Like black person probably still sees me at five foot four. <laughs> but but I've had white people tell me for some reason in my mind, every time I see you, I'm surprised that you're as short as you are, even though they've seen me. But in their mind, they experience me as bigger and stronger and more physically have more physical um, power than I might actually have. That's a psychological thing that's been conditioned into the consciousness of our many people in our society. And so, but it still keeps coming down to that same thing. It's like that person just is a terrified person. Like Penny, in my imagination, because obviously I'm not him, but I perceive that he was scared. And then he acted out of his fear and it's triggered a response. And then he tried to, in his mind, neutralize the threat, even though there may not have been an actual threat happening. But I've seen it time and time again that a people will perceive a threat because they already are carrying that fear within within them. So I've used this example for folks plenty of times. Say that you have a um, water hose in your garage, but you forgot to hang it up. You just throw it on the ground. You forget you throw it on the ground. You have a fear of snakes. You walk into the garage and you think, oh, my God, it's a snake. You start uh, chopping up the water hose immediately. And then you realize, like, oh, oh, my God, it's a water hose. It wasn't a snake. Right. You have both simultaneously had the experience of face coming in face to face with one of your fears, taking action on it. And it was very real until it wasn't. You know, and that's what happens, I think, a lot of times in encounters with folks, um, people encountering black bodies is it's been programmed into our society that we are a threat. And so people have that in their mind already still running that tape of how do I protect myself? How do I keep my family safe? How do not realizing that we have the same concerns? We have the same values. We have the same things that excuse me, that we're um, thinking about every single day. And that when another person puts their fear over someone else's uh, reality, that's a dangerous cocktail, you know, and that's what we are perceiving a lot of times. And so someone like Penny in the mind of another person who's terrified, they'll say he saved us. He was a hero. And there's a without going too far into it, we have a very. um, I would say. A unhealthy. Uh, I can't think of a good word relationship with the hero dynamic. Yeah. Like there, we want someone to be our hero, like so badly that, and when we decide someone's our hero, we have a strong commitment in society to that hero, even when we're witnessing the failings, because we just want someone to make us safe, you know, and it's going to be a while before humans, I think, get to a place where we start to, really realize that a lot of the fears that we're running and operating are not actual reality, you know, because we've been running that tape for so long that it's uh it's pretty, pretty ubiquitous at this point. But I do think that interventions that cause people to have um, come an encounter with cognitive dissonance and being able to say like, hold on and feeling the discomfort of the thoughts that they are holding and it, and their experience and then encountering those, I think we're eventually going to be able to, I hope <laughs> that we'll be able to, because I've seen people do it, to be able to come in contact with that awareness and go like, I'm holding conflicting thoughts. I say I have this value, but I act in this way. 
And I do believe that there's going to be an increased value in congruency in humanity over time. Hopefully it won't take uh, a lot of hardship and despair and more of what we've been seeing to get to that point where we value congruency. I hope it doesn't, but I do believe that eventually uh, congruency will win. Now, one of the reasons I I've, I've, I started doing this work and this type of journalism, this type of um, projects is because um, I think uh, we are purposefully being taught not to think critically. We are purposefully being taught all of these things to maintain, to, to maintain, to, to make people believe they're powerless. So I agree with you wholeheartedly there, because again, when we take a look at the dynamics in this country, and if, if you look at uh, who are the people that really are, should justifiably be scared of others, the least person one would think a, uh, a, a, that the, the, the person that should be most feared in this country are not the black men or whatever. After all, weren't these people allowed them? Well, I, I won't say allowed themselves, but weren't these people enslaved? Weren't these people allowed to have to suffer under Jim Crow? Weren't these people uh, pretty much, uh, for lack of a better term, mentally neutered who needs to fear who and how do you and and look there are genuinely folks that are scared of people who let's say look like me genuinely but it's because of what they were taught but again if being taught is not enough right and, and my question to you is, is as follows it's what you're taught critical and 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 how you're taught to think on your own critical thinking should have Every American citizen, not fearful of, let's say, let's we're talking we're talking black right now. Let's say not a black folk specifically, because again, the the fear seemed to have been justifiably on the other, or should be justifiably on the other side. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I will say that there. I think that there's always been um, resistance of black people. In the con in the constant um in the context of subjugation, like when black people were subjugated in the way that we were during slavery in this country, I do think there was always resistance and things like that. But people, because of those same values, I want to keep my family safe. I want to do these things. We held back um some aspect of our own volition simply because you know we didn't want our children to be harmed or something like that so there i think that that always is in place so i don't think that we were necessarily neutered but we were just being because i know you used that term um but i think that it was more that we were being strategic because we want our child's children to survive i actually wrote a small little uh piece called uh, do children owe their parents and the idea in it was it was talking about um, I, it was called Do Children Owe Their Parents a Black Perspective? And it was the idea that uh, in our context, in an American context, a lot of times the fear black people were afraid for their children um, to be harmed by the white community largely speaking, because they could, you know, touch our bodies or do whatever they wanted to do. And we couldn't, we seemingly couldn't say much. And so that informed a lot of the ways that we show up in the world and informs the ways that our parents uh, parented us sometimes, because sometimes our parents would want to make us more afraid of them 
than we would be of the police or of white people to keep us safe. So they would be like, I want you to be scared of me because so when I tell you don't go down that neighborhood or don't go down that street, you won't because uh, you'll be afraid of what I'll do. And sometimes I might need to make you more scared than uh, of me than you are of the other authorities, if you will. Uh, but then the downside of that is that as uh, we started to gain different freedoms and things like that, some of us started being like our forms of resistance were, you know, going against the system in any way we possibly can, because we know we watched our parents, uh, their backs being broken under the system, watching our parents being like, in my case, my mom was like super intelligent woman. And I feel like my mom got basically bashed by uh, this context in America and was not able to fully realize her potential and, you know, kind of gave up over time because she was constantly uh, being bashed and beat down. Um, and so some of us, we look at that system and we say, OK, if this is what's going to happen, I'm not going to participate. Or I'm going to do whatever I can. Yeah. Why bother? What? How can I get around it? And but I, and I do think that, that all all of those expressions still come down to fear, a sense of powerlessness um, and those sorts of things. I do. And I um, but I also think let me interrupt you a second, yeah. Pedro, because. When I just said, why bother? I, I mean, I this was just sort of a, I had I just got this out of what you were saying. And it was like, wow, people ask different demographics, different groups. Why is it that you stay in that condition? Why don't you take yourself out of the condition? And the way you express that, why bother? If, mm -hmm. I'm, if there's a likelihood I'll be unsuccessful in getting there, why bother? I, you know, that just kind of rang out. Sorry to interrupt you. I just, yeah, that just no, rang, rang out there. I mean, uh, I think a lot of people, um, I mean, for me, it all comes, it, it still all comes down to fear, you know, and no matter what it is. And people do come to that conclusion of why bother. And I do think that people, they, there's a fear, like a lot of people I knew growing up, they were afraid of white people. Um, sometimes they would say that they were fear, for, afraid out loud. Sometimes they would say they would exaggerate the notion that they weren't afraid. And because they want to, they don't, who wants to say, I'm afraid? Who wants to walk around and be like, I'm scared? Exactly. You know what I mean? And so, but it's the same issue that you see um, on either side. And it's the same values, it's the same things that they want to experience. And then that notion that it could be taken from them or that they can try and fail, or it doesn't matter. Like you build up your community and then someone burns it down. Like all of these things, you know, great on the consciousness of a person um, and a community. But at the same time, I still personally submit to the notion that if it's emerging from a place of fear, then it's, um, it's illusion of power is impotent, you know? And so I try my best um, in my own walk to be able to say, where is this coming from? And I've had encounters with people who have been fearful, but because I, if I can get myself to maintain uh, a sense of awareness where I'm like, I see what's happening right now. And I see that this person is operating out of fear. Like I was at a, um, a thing out here when uh, it was a few years ago, I can't remember to recall the man, but it was, it happened in Texas where I believe it happened in Texas, where it was a black man that was um, killing police officers. Oh, uh, yeah. Because, yeah. 
And so we had a vigil. Yeah. So we had a vigil both for the police officers and for the unarmed black people um, who had been killed. So some students held it. It wasn't I wasn't responsible for it, but I decided to show up to it. And uh, a white man showed up. And whenever we read off a name of a black person, he would say something like thug, this, that, that, and the other thing. And it was a candlelight vigil and it was, and we were just saying names um, and trying to hold like a neutral space. These, these college students were doing it and he would say thug and criminal. And he would just throw out these words. And then everybody would kind of look like, why is this guy doing this? So then I said to him, I said, sir, can you please stop? And he was like, no, basically I'm going to keep doing this. And then I said, and I said to him, I said, sir, look, I know that you're afraid. And that's why you're doing this, but you don't need to be afraid. And then he said, I'm not afraid. What are you going to say I'm afraid? These are thugs. And he kept saying his things. And I said, this is event is both for police officers and for on our black people, because the same system is harming everyone. The both same system, everyone afraid of one another and is creating this. So and I tried to explain to him, still, he said what he had to say. And then I said, again, sir, I know you're afraid. And then at some point he said, why do you keep saying I'm afraid? And then I said, because I've been afraid before, too. And my face looked just like yours. And as soon as I said it, he stopped. He didn't say anything else for the rest of the night. He got quiet. And then he sat down and and talked to the students and started asking them questions. And they started talking to him back. Um, But he had to it had the fear and the mutuality had to be acknowledged. And by, you know, grace, I was able to hold my peace and be able to say to him, like, I know what fear looks like. I've been afraid. You are afraid. Stop doing what you're doing out of fear. And he stopped. I don't know what happened with the rest of his life, but he stopped that night and he was able to be quiet. And I think that a lot of people are operating under that that fear. And they're they're like a almost like a soda that's been shaken up contents under pressure and you open up a little bit and they like but it's it's temporary though like even when you shake right. a soda flows for a little bit and then it settles down and it has less fizz less potency and everything that. afterwards but it's it's like we just don't have those containers that allow some of that stuff to spill over and to settle for people to then reflect you know and so we try to create those containers and help people witness what's occurring inside of them when they have these encounters so that they own it. Because if I just tell them, you know, all the time and these are all the tips and stuff like that, it's not going to be sustainable. But if they can get to a point where they recognize it within themselves, then they can say like, oh, this is what's happening in me. And now I realize now that I know that it's happening, just like in 12 steps, you know, you realize you're powerless and then you can invite in something that offers you some semblance of true power. Um, not exactly the same, but there's that you have to admit where you're coming from, that you feel powerless before you can actually do that. And I think that's the the humility that a lot of us need to cultivate. You nailed that. And you know what? Um, believe it or not, we're having so much time talking. We went a bit over time, but here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to close this session out uh, I think we, uh, I think we got just where I'd hope uh, with a, a, a with sort of resolution. What I want to do the, the next time is to cover 
a few more directions. In other words, how can we, everything that you've spoken about, how can we actually make a difference starting now? Hmm. That's the goal that I'd like to, because I think many a times we, we it, not that you are talking in platitudes, not that I'm talking in platitudes, but many times we have all these grandiose ideas. And my question is, what's next? What do we do next? So the next time we talk, I want us to go ahead and talk about what are we going to do next? Because polarization is a, is a real thing now, and it's being directed from above. How can we solve it from below? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll say we're, there's no below. We're not below. <laughs> we're oh, realizing uh, that we're I, not below. I am glad that you corrected me that. What I meant is, I should say really from the masses, from the grassroots. Mm -hmm. That's what I should that's what I should say. Anyway, give me give me a quick 15-second closer. I believe, and I invite others to consider, that we are very much more powerful than we imagine ourselves to be. And that the power that we see in others is just um, a misguided reflection. That if we look within, we'll recognize that the things that we want from everyone else to provide for us to give us, we can do it ourselves, not as individuals, but as a collective, as a community, brother to brother, sister to sister, friend to friend, neighbor to neighbor. Um, it's through that that we create the world that we know is possible. Pedro Silva, director of engagement at Unify. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right, and we will be back. Thank you. Susan Pollard, uh, along with Gabriela Diaz, put on an excellent memorial for the victims of the Uvalde shooting in Uvalde, Texas. It was a moving ceremony that played homage to each of the deceased. Those of you that don't know me, my name is Susan Pollard, and I'm the lead of our Northeast Houston Moms Demand Action Group. Um, Moms Demand Action works very locally, so we're the sort of humble Kingwood, New Caney, Porter area. Um, and tonight, of course, we're here and coming together to remember the 19 children and two educators who were killed in a, in a senseless gun violence one year ago at Robb Elementary. Um, we're going to take some time to do a, a couple of different things tonight. Um, we're going to um, talk about each of the each of the victims of that senseless shooting. Um, and in fact, I have information on each of them. And so um, when we get to that point, if people would like to read about, you know, about one of these one of these folks would be able to do that um, no pressure you don't have to but but you're welcome to um and um you know, we'll, we'll honor them and remember them I, i'd like to introduce a longtime member of our group holly kraus just some words to start our evening um, there's a broadway show called rent and in it, the cast sings the words 525,600 minutes. How do you measure a life in the year? 
tonight, we stand with the Uvalde families who instead have to ask, how has it been a year? Do we measure it in the number of therapy sessions and nightmares that survivors have gone through? Do we measure it in the number of hugs missed, the number of texts and calls never made, the number of good nights and middle school schedules that should be filled out for the fall? Do we measure it in the number of art pieces not created, goals not scored, or jokes not told? Do we measure it in the Mother's Day cards and Father's Day cards not purchased this year? Do we measure it in movies not seen, graduations, birthday parties, and holidays with empty chairs? Do we measure it in the number of pictures added to the ofrendas? Tonight, we gather to support the Uvalde families and all those touched by the massacre at Robb Elementary one year ago today. We offer our thoughts and prayers, but we do not stop there. We honor with action. So many families from Uvalde have joined with families from Santa Fe, whose five-year remembrance was last week, to fight tirelessly to keep anyone else from knowing the pain that they experience each and every day. We will continue to stand with them, but tonight we pause to remember each life taken and hold their loved ones in our hearts. Lives that will be forever marked by the before and after of this tragedy. Tonight we will read their names along with words shared by their loved ones. At this point in the ceremony, uh, the names of every single person that was murdered at that elementary school. A little bit about their story was read. Uh, I didn't tape that because these were individuals within the group that that were reading the these pieces, and for privacy reasons, I said I decided not to tape that. But here's the end of the program now. Our family and our community remember all of the children and teachers whose lives were needlessly taken at Rob Elementary. And the families who will forever have an empty seat at the dinner table. And certainly our daughter's injuries and continued recovery, along with the trauma of all the children who survived, will forever be a reminder of the tragedy. We can and should honor the 21 lives taken with action, answers, and accountability. So... As we think about how do we measure a life and the death, and Christina's call to honor with action, I'd like to read a poem by Amanda Gorman that, that speaks to this. Um, I know we may not feel hopeful or as hopeful now, but I think the work we do is important, and this poem as many of her poems do, speak to hope. And I think that's important to hear while we're in the midst of this. I thought I'd awaken to a world in mourning, heavy clouds crowding, a society storming. But there's something different on this golden morning, something magical in the sunlight, wide and warming. While we might feel small, separate and alone, our people have never been more closely tethered. The question isn't if we will weather this unknown, but how we will weather this unknown together. 
So on this meaningful board, we mourn and we mend. Like the light, we can't be broken, even when we bend. We ignite, not in the light, but in the lack thereof. For it is in loss that we truly learn to love. In this chaos, we will discover clarity, and in suffering, we must find solidarity. For it's our grief that gives us our gratitude, shows us how to find hope if we ever lose it. So ensure that this ache wasn't endured in vain. Do not ignore the pain. Give it purpose. Use it. We'll observe how the burdens raved by humankind are also the moments that make us humans kind. Let every dawn find us courageous, brought closer, leading the light before the fight is over. When this ends, we'll smile sweetly, finally seeing in testing times we become the best of beings. <clears throat> I think it is important to try and be non-knuckled when we're in the midst of all that we're in the midst of right here. There have been 48 mass shootings in Texas since the shooting at Robb Elementary, and that's just Texas. Um, but we want to think of, of, of these people that we spoke of, that we heard about, what they liked and what they loved and what they did. Uh, and so we want to honor all of those impacted by gun violence. Today and every day, we're going to stand with them. We're going to fight for them and for anybody who's been impacted by gun violence. Because we know it's these families, plus all of the children who were there, plus their families. And it's a ripple that spreads out. And we want, we want to do our best for all of them so that no one else ever again has to kind of unimaginable grief and pain. Thank you all for coming and for being here. Um, I'm going to make a small plug. For those of you who are not members of our Moms Demand Action Group, if that's something you're interested in, the quickest and easiest way is to text JOIN, J-O-I-N, to 64433. That will get you into the bomb system. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. After the current Democratic representative of the district chose to align herself with a Republican sect in the Texas legislature promoting hate against some in her district, she chose to become a willful ally to deny them the care they needed. The only way to ensure politicians support the will of the people is to challenge them in the primaries. A seat is owned by no one. It belongs to the people. In that light, community organizer and political activist Ashton P. Woods decided to put himself on the block again to serve the interests of the entire District 146. Welcome to Politics Done Right, Ashton. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I am trying to get things that I understand now that you have a, a great announcement you made this week. Yeah. Um, I actually announced last Friday that I will run against her and I just put out a fundraising ask via Act Blue and raised about $10,000 in less than three days to run against Shanti. I wonder Eric. why. I tell you what, let, let's, let's get into that. Let's really get into this. Well, <clears throat> first of all, 
let me tell you about who I am. For those of you who are going to be watching and listening, my name is Ashton P. Woods. I'm the founder of Black Lives Matter Houston. I've been in Houston since I was 20 years old. Um, I came with Katrina. I started the first Gay Straight Alliance in a high school in New Orleans, all black high school. And I've been an activist ever since for black lives and, and, and everybody in, for that matter. I'm not one of those all lives matter people, but I believe that allyship, like Sean portrayed herself to be, representative theory portrayed herself to be, is to be an ally to folks that you demand allyship from. So you can't say Black Lives Matter without being an ally to other people. So be, for for supporting people who don't look like you, who might be AAPI or Latino, brown, black and brown, right? And so the district, the reason why I say this is that this district is made up of so many different types of people. And her vote for SB 900, SB 14, and I think 2751. Um, the will of people recognize that she's always been this person, that she's always been homophobic and, and anti-LGBTQ. She's been with the Houston Baptist, Houston Baptist Ministers Association alignment. Um, if you're familiar with them, they voted. They voted. Yes, I remember when we had the rights ordinance. Exactly. To, um, we almost had an equal rights ordinance in 2014. In 2015, it was on the ballot. It got voted down, and Houston lost a lot of business because of the anti-LGBT rhetoric and the no men and women's restrooms uh, BS that they that they were spouting. And here it is again. She's voting to ban. She voted to ban trans athletes from um, playing on the sports team with the gender identity that they're currently going by. They keep putting this as a groomer thing with the with the bill for gender affirming care where um, Texas Children's Hospital just announced uh, today that they're, they're going to go ahead and stop doing the gender affirming care after their data got leaked to uh, the attorney general and the governor recently via someone who hasn't been identified yet and and basically putting people in danger that that's a violation of HIPAA that's a violation of federal law privacy laws um based on what from what I understand you know your medical bill of rights right um, absolutely and the yeah. medical bill of rights came from the protest that happened in 1986 that coined the phrase nothing about us without us HIV positive people are the people who came up with the medical medical bill of rights that you that you benefit from today, and that was violated. The, those trans kids were their rights were violated, their privacy rights were violated by that. And so you have people. I have a supporter who donated to me recently, um, who um who wouldn't take a refund back because she has to flee because her child was on that list of people who was leaked to the government, the state government. And they have to leave and go to another state because they think they're in danger. And so that's why I am running against Sean Theory, among other things. You're writing a book adding to the anti-CRT um, critical race theory, which is a phrase that is non-existent. It's not real. It's made up, just like any other disinformation that's come from the big lie. And so now you've taken and you've done something. You, you claim... Wait, wait a minute. That, Are you telling me she voted against the CRT? I mean, voted with that CRT crap as well? No, what I said was that she voted the book, but the gender, um, the gender queer okay. ban, the right. book ban right. is in addition to, in addition to what was already passed, as far as the CRT bill. Because remember, the CRT bill is critical race theory that they claim was 
supposedly about um, making people feel guilty, but what it really was was about erasing black people, erasing brown people, AAPI people, and Latino people when I say brown and black people, because there are black people in all of those groups, right? So when you think about it, most of the books that have been banned under the the under Florida law and under other states other, that yeah. have a similar bill that, that she voted for under this book ban that that was based on the, this book called Gender Queer, most of those books are written by black people. This is a race issue, and she claims that she's being racially attacked by this. But her privilege and her bias as a cisgender straight woman who has light skin privilege. And presents very um, culpable with white people is saying that it's, it's, it's basically throwing a rock from a rented glass house and saying, "Oh, look, you're you're attacking me. You're you're a vicious or 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 vile activist uh, uh, coming at me because I voted this way. I'm only trying to protect the children. But the thing is, is if you voted for that book, you're not trying to protect the children. You're trying to hurt someone because you well, take it let, let, let me stop you there because there uh, I'm reading the state. She had a statement that she put out called a statement on voting to raise the age to 18 for gender modification treatments and surgeries." And here's her major reason, and it's in her first paragraph. It says, after hearing from constituents, listening to stakeholders, and reviewing the scientific data in this country and around the globe, I am assured that this position is rooted in sound policy, which supports the health development and overall well-being of minors. That's not a true statement. No, that's not a true statement. That statement also says, stakeholders. The only stakeholders involved is the is the doctor, the person get, going through the gender, the per, the personal doctor, the person going through the gender change uh, uh, prescriptions, etc., and the parents. Nobody else. That's right. Those are the, and and if you are going through these different, if if you're the doctor giving the the the, the uh, medical treatment, if you're the parent allowing the medical treatment. And if you are the kid receiving the medical treatment after going through the psychological rigor that you go through, those are the only stakeholders that matter. Well, yeah, and that the scientific data that she, the scientific data that she's citing, she can look at the DSM five, which is the federal government's um, database on mental health. I'm a sociology student. She's a law student. She should know better than to spout information that she couldn't verify herself. This is, as I stated before. This is based on misinformation, part of the big lie under Trump. It's, it's the same thing as the election. It's all tied together, connect the dots. She's supporting an agenda under a Democratic banner by attacking the LGBTQ community when she doesn't realize that there are Black, black LGBT people who live in her district who have voted for her repetitively who she is hurting, who she did not contact as stakeholders, who who have tried to reach out to her, who she has deliberately ignored, who she was called out on Twitter for um, ignoring, actually, as a matter of fact. And when you when when I was uh, talking to KXAN in Austin, I was told by um, by the reporter that the manager said that, well, the um, she was censored by the Milan Democrats, but the Milan Democrats has a lot of black membership. They just can't show up to the meetings just like they can't show up to the Texas legislature. They go to work every day just like you and me. They can't choose between the bus fare, the light bill, and the bo- the dollar menu of a babysitter to go to the to the Texas legislature like most of the people who looked who did not look like me or you uh, showed up did. 
That's the reality of it. But the other thing is, is that same effort that they put forth in, in claiming racism and, oh, it's just the white people trying to do that, that dog whistle BS about erasing the fact that black LGBT people actually exist. That homophobia, that transphobia, all that anti-LGBT madness could be squashed by one thing. Every state representative has an office that they that, that the state requires if a constituent can't make it to the, to the Texas Capitol. They are required by law to allow that constituent to, te- to testify remotely from the district office. She has a district office in the Sunnyside Motor Service Center that, ju- that she just opened, the, the new one. And so where was where was she at when those constituents needed to be notified? I get emails from all of the representatives all the time, a weekly email talking about what happened this week and that and the other, but... Who has time to check email when a lot of times they talk about rural people who don't have data and internet like that and, and are doing things on the phone just like that? This is the hood. Sunnyside is in, I'm in Sunnyside. A lot of people use the internet from their phone. A lot of people have limited data on their phone. How are they going to know to do this? How are they going to know where to go? That's outreach. When was the last time she had a forum talking to constituents instead of stakeholders like Max Miller, who voted to, um, who was a part of the Houston Ministers uh, pack that I was talking about earlier, um, to come out against the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, which would have gave us a, a, a some type of reform to talk about being discriminated against for being black, LGBT, or, or otherwise anything, woman. Man, regardless of what we identified as some type of protection, we still don't have that protection to this day. And so almost 10 years later, in 2023, we we don't have those protections, and she's still taking pictures to this day. Right now, in a picture, I just tweeted about it, like, right before I got on with you, with Max Miller, the same biggest who were talking about um, to the LA Times they can't support same-sex marriage. Well, I was at the Supreme Court with Jim Obergefell when same-sex marriage was being heard. I was in the room when we found out that I had the right and millions of people had the right to finally get married because of Obergefell v. Hodges. And so when people like her erase people like me, it 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 sparks something in me to run, not just because of the LGBT issue, but because I want to know why we don't have sidewalks in this area, why we don't have fire hydrants. Let me in, stop you right. Let me, let me stop you right there. Hold on. Like it is important for people to see that if their if if their representative, irrespective of party, is not doing what is necessary to serve the people. That the, in fact, on the program today, that's what I try to tell people. They say that the 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 government doesn't work for them. The government will work for you if you become the government as it was intended to be. And right now, what I see you doing, Mr. Um, Woods, is that you're saying the government did not perform, your representative did not perform, and you put yourself up on the block to serve. So my next question and last question to you is, what will you do uh, if elected into that position? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is is what I'm going to do while I'm running is I'm going to go talk to the people. I want to have forums quarterly or, or, or how often as I can to talk to the people about what they need. I know that if I stepped outside right now, there's not a sidewalk that I could walk on from, from my front door off over here off of off of uh, Scott and Reed where I live, right? There are no fire hydrants. There's a little blue hydrants that are around Houston. Those are not fire hydrants. Those are water mains. There's streets that don't have stop signs or, or traffic lights and people fly by, get hit. Those ditches you can fall into when it rains and get swept away because they're so deep. We need people to understand that there's an infrastructure issue. There's a public safety issue. 
not policing, but infrastructure as a public safety issue and a quality of life issue. If we give people the things that they need, like making sure that we work with the grocery stores that are in the area, on the, the corner floors in the area to make sure, for example, the items that they're selling are not past expiration and to make sure that we have facilities for people to get deodorant, tampons, different toiletries that they might need so that they can go to work and, and be and be fresh, right? Thinking about in this district about how I live right down the street from high school and I hear a police siren about three or four times every morning around the same time around 5 a.m. And they just do it to intimidate people, right? And thinking about the idea that that same school down the street is a black school, which is something that I wanted to get into. The, the idea that she wanted to push metal detectors, which is something that is something I'm against. I'm, I'm, I'm for the panic button bill, but think about it. That's the school to prison pipeline tie-in. Black schools with metal detectors, and then you want to arm teachers. And I wrote about that. I can send you the link to that, too. Who's aiming at who? A teacher from Conroe or from, from Richmond, Texas, outside of Houston, could not have any relationship to any of the community of the children who go to that school. It could easily pull a shot, pull a gun and shoot a student because he looked at them the wrong way. Right? And so... We have to think about how we are coming from a place of privilege if we are coming from a place of privilege like I feel like she is in context of her bills. So she's not thinking about how she promoted maternal mortality rates without talking about trans masculine people. When we are talking about people who exist as they are, you're taking their life chances away from them. You're, you're wrecking the quality of life and people are having to leave because of it. And I'm voting and I'm voting against her and running against her to let her know that she can't do that, that she cannot align with these Republicans and hurt people who look like her while saying black lives matter. She didn't even show up to the Uvalde event that we did last year. And it's a, it's a year later. Right. Right. So you think about how all these things work hand in hand. It's about the cruelty. It's the cruelty is the point. The education about the book bans is about erasing people, queer people people of color, which both can be one and the same intersectionally, which is why, I, why I'm also running to teach that you can't separate Black from LGBTQ. You can't separate Latino from, uh, from LGBTQ. You can't separate woman from LGBTQ. You can't separate man. You can't separate anybody because you got somebody in your family who's trans, gay, or bisexual. You got somebody who's Afro-Latino in your family. You got somebody who's Afro-Asian. We are everywhere. We are a diaspora and we have to be respected in that way. And I'm running to make sure that all of the people in the district, whether they agree with me or not, are represented. Ashton P. Wood, activist Woods. and community organizer. Thank you so kindly. And, and, and now candidate in District 146. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics and Right. Thank you for having me. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join. <laughs>